You are listening to the Lifebox Media Channel Radio Podcast. Please like and subscribe. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Lifebox Media Channel Radio Podcast. Today is my esteemed pleasure to have on. He's an author. He's probably one of the most blessed people that we'll ever have on a show. Mr. Stephen Tybee, how are you today? Hello, how are you today? I'm doing great. Very good, thank you so much. Thank you so much for coming on. Did I get your last name correctly? It's Taibi. Taibi. Okay, apologies to that. Um, Taibi, Mr. Taibi. So thank you so much for coming on, sir, today. And how are you doing today? I'm doing awesome. I'm so glad to have you on, you know. I mean, it's really, I, I, you know, I read your story, and man, I'll tell you what, I mean, you came out swinging from the beginning. Well, I guess, I, you know, I just um, just always wanted to stay alive. I had the strong feeling that being dead wasn't as good. <laughs> that, that little bit of, uh, I, I got a little bit of kick to me going on. I understand that, you know, t- to come into this and being a two-time heart transplant patient, I mean, that's not something that happens every day. No, I'm not a three-time heart transplant. I'm a two-time heart no, no, transplant. I, I said two-time, sir. Yes, sir, two-time. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And I and I had uh, two open hearts as a child. Oh my I was, gosh! I was actually the first person in the world to live through two um, ASD repairs at the atrial septum defect. It used to be known as a hole in the heart. Um, but um, I was the first person in the world to live through two. When I uh, that happened when I was six, I had my first operation when I was five. Man, that that is that is incredible. You know, and, and forgive my voice. I'm just getting over laryngitis, so if you miss if I mishear something, it's just because my voice still cracks once in a while. It's okay. <laughs> so, um, but going through this and walking through this story, and you also have a huge Hollywood connection as well. And I actually, you brought back a lot of memories looking at your bio and going back when Lifetime wasn't a network. I love that part. That was fantastic to look at that. It brought back some great memories and some great shows. Yeah, 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 I did the Lifetime. I did a bunch of the shows that became, um, back, you know, I was, I was one of the guys in New York that, that got cable going. You know, there was like a group of us. And um, a lot of the shows became networks. Lifetime, Good Housekeeping, um, there was a couple of others, uh, and, and I, I did them all, you know? Well, you know, but, put, put, put that back when, back in the day when cable wasn't all over the city too, right? Yeah, I mean, cable was brand new when I, you know, when I started. I mean, you know, like I said, like Lifetime was a show, and Good Housekeeping was a show, and I can't. There were a couple of others that were shows that became um, networks. I can't remember right now, but um, I did a bunch of them, you know. And uh, there was a group of us. We just did. We just did the majority of the shows. Everybody realized that cable really started in New York, not in L.A. And um, and I was, you know, working in television in New York, and uh, me and my friends are blessed to uh, to get those shows. Yeah, I mean, I remember I used to watch Regis all the time, his 9 o'clock show on there. I used to love that, you know, and watch a little bit of Dr. Ruth, too, and everything else. Yeah, Dr. Ruth was wrong. I, I did, uh, she did, um, she did two different shows. I did both of them. Uh, she was a blast. Man, I loved working with Dr. Ruth. I have to, I have to ask. I was gonna I was gonna say that she. I mean, the show seemed like a lot of fun, but it seemed like man, she was a fire pistol for sure. Well, I'll tell you something. She was. You know uh, that that whole thing about people who have personal power. You know. Yes. And I've met a few people in my life who um, uh, Rockefeller, uh, not Nelson, the other the brother uh, Rockefeller had it. Um, Richard Nixon had it because uh, remember when Nixon did the Nixon memoirs and it was on Charles Carrollton on 60 Minutes? Yes, sir. 
I was one of the guys that did that. And, um, and, and so uh, Rockefeller, Nixon, and and Dr. Westheimer are the three people in my life I've met who had absolute personal power. Let me ask you a question on that part is in uh, that the personal power part with Ruth, Dr. Ruth Westheimer, you know, did you get a lot of controversy? Because, I mean, cable was already controversial as it was. You being part of this show, did you get a lot of heat from this? No, but it was fun. To, it was fun to wear um, the, the show jacket in town. You know, if I was out and I had the show jacket on, I said "Good Sex with Doctor Ruth" on the back. You know, that got, a lot of, that got a lot of comments. I had a deli guy one time said to me, "Man, that must have been lag of a question." <laughs> I had won it, <laughs> but um, she, she was a real cow. I mean, she was. Um, if she didn't want to do something, you weren't going to get her to do it. It was unbelievable. She was really powerful. If the director wanted her to do something that she didn't think was in her interest, she wouldn't budge. And and and, and it was, believe me, there was no choice in the matter. And I never saw her do that in a way that was bad. And I never saw her do that in a way that actually wasn't good for her. So she was an impressive lady. I always liked her very much. Nothing wrong with that, man. She stuck to her guns and uh, made sure she took care of herself the way it needed to be. I respect that. Do you have a favorite? I believe believe in that person, you know, absolutely. And that's one of the reasons why I respect her as much as I do. I love that. That, And and that's, do you have a favorite episode? Oh, there were so many. So many of them were so much fun. And so, you know, there, there was... I, I, I actually can't come up with a favorite episode. They were just all such a blast. They really were. Okay. Some were better than others, but um, you know, um, they they were um, no, they were just they were all good. They were all good. I think if people went back and they go find it on YouTube or wherever they are, the network or whatever, and not only not only were they informative, legitimately informative. Don't get me wrong, legit, but you would laugh your butt off at, at oh yeah, just the way she her presentation, the way it was. She didn't she took it seriously, but didn't take it seriously. If I can say that, you know. And, yeah, that's exactly right. And you know, she she broke every wall that you could have on television in an educational way before anybody could do that. Yeah, and you know, the thing is that when we were all done, you know, I, yes, if there was a show that I was going to really, really like, it was the one with Cindy Lauper, um, <laughs> and it was just emerging back then. And what a another powerful person. Uh, you know her voice, that that voice that she has. That's that's um, her act. That's not her. Right. And and she gets in when she came into the studio. She had her, her street voice. And as we were getting closer to airtime, she was moving into that persona. Um, but that, that's another that's another person who really knows what knew what she wanted and and knew how to get it. But she was a doll to the crew. And she and I had a great time together. I spent a lot of time speaking with her. And she was just a really, uh, I shouldn't say was, but back when I was, you know, talking to her, she was really, really pleasant and great to, to, to be with, um, you know, and she's a tremendous talent. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, one of my one of my favorite people I've ever hung out with, with 100%, 100% without a doubt, Cindy Lauper. And I, and I get the part of uh, the young squeaky voice to, to Cindy and the whole thing. Yeah, that, that, that definitely, definitely cool. And another fellow New Yorker for you, right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I, uh, in a, I, I just moved here. I, I live in um, Eastern Tennessee. I live in Maryville, um, and I, I'm only here seven months. But we really, really love it. And we're really happy we got out of the madhouse of New York. 
you know what? I love, you know, New York's the greatest city in the world to go to and hang out and have fun and everything else it is. But man, it's going all the time. And, you know, and, and you know, you're not too far from me. You know, we're in Nashville. And uh, so it was really cool to have you on. I haven't been up to Maryville in a little while, but I mean, I will have to get together sometime. But definitely wanted to know how you enjoy it. How I would what? How you enjoy, you're enjoying Maryville. Oh, we, 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 um, we have, um, it's kind of a little farmhouse. We have three and a half acres. We have a barn. I mean, we have a pool. We're, we're just thrilled here. You, you, you know, the people, the people are so nice down here. It's really completely different than New York. Yeah, you'd have to, you'd have to have Bill Gates money to have that in New York. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's what I have down here, what, what what that would have cost in New York is it's, it's insane. And the taxes, I literally pay one tenth of the taxes that I did in New York, and I have nine times the property. <laughs> right, I hear you, brother. I hear you. Um, you know, and and that segue from we were talking about, you know, making an impact and being legitimate, and being real. You know, that's you. I mean, everything I've read, heard. And even some of the interviews I watched uh, with you, man, you just don't take no for an answer in regards to the fact that you're determined. You try to, you know, obviously you have that will to live and you've pretty been pretty blessed. But I mean, um, how do you keep that ambition and, and you know, that, that, that inspiration alive, man? Yeah. I mean, when you're being told that you're profoundly ill or when you're born profoundly ill and you really figured it out that, you know, when you're watching children in the same room as you are um, go to operations and never come back and you know what happened, you know, they didn't make it. It, it, um, it has a way of making you focus. And all I wanted to do was get back home. All I wanted to do was not, was, was to not die. I, you know, uh, my battle cry even to this day is I'm still not dead. And, um, I just wanted to always be active in my own health. Um, I figured out at the age of five, I really had, I really had a more of an understanding of it when I was six. That I'm in this. Actually, I this part I learned when I was five. That you may have your parents, you may have your your, your siblings, all that, but when you're in the hospital, you're alone. Especially in those days, back in the 50s, they only allowed your parents in one hour a day. Right, and right. You sat in your bed by yourself without a television, without any t games, without any toys, with nothing for 24 hours a day. Well, 23 hours a day. You were in your bed laying there just, you know, having nothing to do. Now, so that's a good way to learn how to think. And um, I would just, you know, I, and I figured out. I had a moment, it's in my book, I had a moment when I realized I'm doing this by myself. My parents can't help me. My, my, my brothers and sister can't help me. They don't even know what's going on in here. I mean, even my parents didn't really know what was going on because they weren't on time. the... What's that? It was a different time. No cell phones, no, no sit down and talks. They put you in a ward or they put you in a room and... And there was no, there was no, the doctors didn't take three hours to talk to you like some of them do today. Well, they didn't talk to you at all when you were a kid. Right. When you were a kid, when you were, a kid you were just a piece of meat. They didn't think you had any feelings. I, I mean, they honestly, if you think back of it, the mores of the, were of the 50s. Kids were to be seen and not heard. Right. Nobody thought they really could think. Nobody thought they really had emotions. They just thought that, you know, you were a piece of medical meat that needed treatment. Um, but... 
that I figured out, the first big thing I figured out was that I was doing this by myself. And so that made me really try to figure out all the ways I had to armor up, all the, all the ways that all the kind of different strategies that I've developed over the years to stay alive. And I've developed a lot of them. And, and I don't even go to a doctor's office without a strategy. I mean, I've discovered, um, you know, strategy saved my life. I've had, I had a doctor one time tell me after I did something that he was against, that he told me the only reason why I was alive was because of me. So, um, and the reason, one of the reasons why I wrote the book is because, well, first of all, it's, it's a fun book to read anyway. Um, I, people tell me they can't put it down. But if somebody in your family is sick, or if you're sick, people don't give themselves enough credit. I'm nothing special. I really am nothing special. I just figured something out at a young age. That's all this is. But most people don't figure it out. They get into a hospital. They go into fear. They go into panic. They go into everything except what they need to survive. And I... My book is because I want everybody to know, no, you can do this. You have it within yourself. Just get yourself under control and start doing some things to help yourself through this, and, and you'll get through it. How long did it take you to write this book? A long time. I kept getting interrupted. I had, um, the book was almost finished. It was on my birthday. My six, uh, well, I forget. I think it was my sixty-first birthday. I forget now. Um, and we were making the um, the trailer for the book, and um, I had a heart attack, oh my a bad God. one. But we didn't know it was a heart attack because it was because I was a transplant, and there's no feeling of a heart attack. Um, but I knew I wasn't well, and I, that was a Friday, and I went to the hospital on a Monday. My doctor was like panicked when she saw me. And next thing I know, I'm in a hospital, and we found out. I found out then that my my heart was rejecting. So um, excuse, me, heart, excuse me, Stephen. Can I interrupt you there? I'm not sure what you mean by there's no feeling of a heart attack because your heart transplant. Can you kind of kind of explain that to us a little bit, my friend? Yeah, sure. Because when when you when you have your own heart in you, it's connected to ner you by nerves. Your your brain is connected to the a heart rate center. It helps control the beat of your heart. You know, you if you have any pain in your heart, you, your pain receptors are going to send messages. But when they when you become a transplant, they have to cut all those nerves. They take that heart out. Your heart is gone. Uh, my heart's at home. I have it here behind me in a jar. Oh um, but um, but. Uh, once they put a new heart in you, those major nerves never connect again. The, the, the brain and the heart are completely disconnected. So if you have um, a heart attack, you don't have any way of knowing. You don't get the pain. You're not going to clutch your chest because there's no pain. So how, so how do you, how do you kind of like, what, what were your symptoms? I mean, how do you know that all of a sudden you basically, you, you just feel like hell or what? We were outside. It was a cold day. It wasn't horribly cold, but it was cold enough. And all of a sudden, I started shuddering like crazy. And and my 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 assistant told me that I turned gray. And she walked up to me. And she's a she's a mother. And she walked up to me and she she said, "I don't like the way you look at all." I, she was she was really rattled. Um, and um, she was the only one who noticed. And, uh. 
but we, you know, the show must go on. And we finished, the, we finished, we were almost at the end of the shoot. Um, we finished the shoot. And I went home. And next thing you know, I'm, I'm being, you know, they're saving my life, but I had to get, I had to get five cents. And, wow. um, and then, uh, and then I was put on the transplant list. That is, that is a see. I, I'm I'm so glad you shared that. And and forget. I hope it didn't. I hope it didn't. Uh, you know, rally up no. at all. But I mean, I just I'm so glad you shared that because that's something I didn't know. That once you get a transplant, that you would not have those same prototypical symptoms that you'd have of having a heart attack. And that's something. Uh, and you learn something new every day. And that's that's definitely uh, that's a new one for me. And I appreciate you sharing. And um, now this coming around to the second one. How do they treat it? Do they treat you like, okay, look, man, this guy's already had one go at this. Do you go to the top of the list, the bottom of the list, or, or just go by condition? Well, it depends on your age. I was young enough at the time that age wasn't an issue. But um, they do they do look at, when I got my first heart, they barely got me a heart in time, and it was not a good match. And they knew it wasn't a good match when they put it in me, but they thought that, well, it was better than nothing. And it was, you know, it was do this or he's going to die. Cause I was at the end of my rope. I, my wife, my wife's a nurse. My wife and I both thought I was lucky if I had a week or two, I mean, lucky. And, um, and then I would have gotten so sick that I wouldn't have gotten an organ and I just would have died. So, um, I, I was right at the edge and the doctors were like, you know, New York is, um, is, uh, is not the greatest state for organ donation. Back when I got my first one, it wasn't horrible, but now it's number 50 out of 50. That's why I had to go to California for my second transplant. But uh, at the time, that was the only heart that they had, and they said, all right, we're putting this one in them. And uh, I've made it last for 15 years. It was just nine days short of 15 years. And they were very impressed with how well I took care of the heart. Um, the fact that I, nobody expected it to last that long, the fact that I made it last 15 years, that everybody said, okay, this guy's got to get a heart. I didn't go to the top of the list, but I was pretty high up. Well, you, so that, that's pretty impressive. Dude, you take care of it better than we take care of our cars. <laughs> I mean, you know, somebody, somebody and, and really it's not that, I mean, if the donor said that they wanted to be a donor, I have no idea if, if my first donor wanted to be or not. But I do know that it was his wife who said yes. Oh my and God. so, you know, she's just lost her husband, the father of her children, her lover, um, at least part of the bread, you know, the, the income for the house. Yes, Jesus, everything. And this woman has the grace to say, no, he would have wanted this. Let's save some other lives while we can instead of just having my husband die. And that's a really, that's never lost on me. So to me, I have a huge responsibility to the family right. to take care of that organ. And also, there's another person on the list waiting, and they might have skipped that person because their heart wasn't quite good enough or whatever the reason is. But I got the heart and somebody else didn't. And as far as I'm concerned, and this is in both cases, I, I feel like I owe a huge debt to the donor, to the donor family, and to the person, the other people who didn't get it. You know, I, I've never heard someone, I've heard someone say about the family, but I've never heard someone else say about the fact of, you know, the guy after you or the guy that maybe you took their place of or 
anything else. I've never heard anybody address that before, and I, that's pretty amazing, guy. I mean, you know, to just even think about that and to you know realize kind of how blessed you are that you know you got that spot and recognizing what other people have lost in the process. Um, I get a lot of respect for you on that, Stephen. Um, okay. No, it's that's, just the truth. That's it's pretty it's pretty remarkable. Um, do you? Obviously, I want to ask you a question. If you don't mind me asking, you can say none of my business. But are are you? Uh, do you push the donors uh, in regards to the fact that people signing up for donors? Uh, you know, under license and stuff. Yeah, well, I, I was the um, after I after I got my first heart, I, I joined Transplant Speakers International, and we were really pretty big for a while. We lasted sixteen years. I was with them fourteen. And um, I became their vice president. We worked really, We were an international company. We have a, an adjunct in, um, in. We had an adjunct in England, and we had um, something going on in Canada as well as the United. We were all over the United States. We used to travel all over. There are OPOs or organ procurement organizations. That's where you get listed for the for if you need an organ. And um, there were. Um, I remember. 59 OPOs, I could be wrong about this number, but uh, 56 of them were, were our clients. So we, we basically had has, have visited, at least visited, or were the clients of, uh, or they were our clients of um, most of the OPOs in the country. So I was traveling all over the country training volunteers um, on how to speak to get donation. And, um, and But one thing I, I do, I mean, I'll ask somebody to be a donor. But if they say no, I don't push it. It's a very personal thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I won't push somebody into being a donor. I think it turns people off. Um, I'd rather say, I'd rather say, well, I'll say this. I'll say, well, what do you think God would rather have you do? He gave you the gift of life. What do you think? You think he'd rather you bury it or burn it or pass it on? And if they say no after that, I'm done. I got you. I have a question to ask you. What do you say to someone who is in that position that you've been in twice and that you've obviously worked in who's looking at maybe standing in that position of needing a donor and doesn't know what to do or doesn't have an advocate and they're just maybe they just get the news? What's your best advice, my friend? What, what, for what? For that they just got the news that they're in tr- that they're in serious trouble? Yes, sir. They need they might need a donor for themselves or a family member or whatever. Okay. When I got told that I needed a heart transplant the first time, I, I can control my, my emotions very well. Um, I, you know, cause I had all this heart trouble as a child and I thought I was done with it. Right. And, uh, and I, I caught a virus. I lost my heart to a virus. It had nothing to do with my childhood. So, um, when they told me that I was going to need a heart transplant, I was in my office at my home. And I literally put the phone down from my, you know, after speaking to my doctor, I folded my arms in front of me and I cried. I cried for about three to five minutes. Once I was done crying, I was done. I never shed a single tear over my, over myself. I I cried about my wife, uh, about other things, but nothing, nothing about myself. I wouldn't allow it. If you're told, if you're given profoundly bad news about your, about your health, crying and feeling pity for yourself is a death sentence. You will, you will not help yourself. You can't be a soldier and fight 
if you're looking through your own tears. You just can't. It blurs your vision. You need to be, you need to. So when somebody tells you bad news like that, you have to make some decisions. You have to say, okay, I'm going to get this emotion out of me, and you get it out of you. I'm not saying you shouldn't have it, but you should get it out of you. Right. And once you get it out of you, you're done. You're done. Now it's time to fight. You can't be crying on the battlefield. It's, it's really, it's really the way I think about it. And, and and you have to armor up and start building your strategies. What are you going to do? Now, and, and I, I I agree. I, I sit there and I say it like, okay, look, Ben, you cried. Now grief's over. Now now let's go. You know, like, right. let's go. Now, as far as the fact of being an advocate, and you know, maybe they're getting kind of tooled around or whatever. Uh, from people, is there any is there any advice you can give them to be able to know steps or where to go or something like that? You know, in a process if they're kind of getting yanked around. Well, that's why I wrote the book. I have all the answers to that in the book. But I'll say a couple of things that somebody should always do. The number one thing you should do when you're in the hospital, the number one thing you should do, is make it that everybody in the hospital wants to be in your room. You have to be the most pleasant, the nicest, the most grateful patient in the entire building. When you're that, they want to help you. If you're, you know, I've seen people scream and yell, do you know who I am? And I'm like, man, are you a freaking moron? What is wrong with you? That's really not the way to get somebody to want to help save your life. Not if they're angry at you. But every person who comes into your room, no matter who they are, you have to thank them profusely for helping you. They're part of the team. The janitor is part of the team. That janitor is keeping the room clean so you don't get infections. He's part of the team. The person who brings your food in, he or she is part of the team. The person who does your blood draws, every single person who comes in your room is there for your care. So act like it and 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 be grateful, really honestly grateful. Find out their names, call them by their name, ask them about their families. Make it so every single person can't wait to be in your room. That's the number one thing you should do. The number two thing you should do is wear street clothes. You should wear, um, male, male or female, you need to wear a button-down shirt, something that can be opened easily, and it should have a, a pocket. Because in case you need a monitor, it can go right in there instead of hanging from your neck. It's much more comfortable. And maybe sweatpants as your as your bottoms or pajama bottoms, whatever you care. But wear street clothes. When a doctor comes in and sees you in a gown or a nurse, they see the gown. When you when you were wearing street clothes, you're different than every other patient on the floor. I love that, man. That's some fantastic advice. That is really key there, man. I like that a lot. You know, see, these are practical things, but very intelligent things and, and strategic things. You know, you, you're a big strategist. Strategist. You know, strategist, thank you. I, I do that Bugs Bunny strategy, you know, and then I always mess myself up with it. So, you know, <laughs> you know so <laughs> I got you to pop. I got you to laugh. That's funny. Um, but, you know, but no, I, I like this. I, I do that all the time. That's why I'm, I'm really laughing at myself because I do that all the time. <laughs> hey, you know, I'm a couple years younger than you, but, you know, you grew up with old cartoons, man. It's great stuff. <laughs> you, you know, um, but, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's funny, though, because people try to look at things, you know, and try to figure things out. Sometimes the easiest stuff 
you just lied out, you know, a lot of really good advice. And there's a ton of great advice in the book. And um, the title I want to get to as well. Grateful, you know, I mean, Grateful Guilt Living in the Shadow of My Heart. Dude, that just gives you chills by itself. Well, thanks. Uh, I mean, it, it really does step out. Um, is there a way in the thought process you came up with this title? Well, <laughs> excuse me. When I was with Transplant Speakers International, I told you we were working with all the LPOs. Yes, sir. Nobody, nobody was acknowledging survivor's guilt for the recipients. It was a real problem. No one was acknowledging it. You'd say to you'd say to the president of an OPO, you know, I feel really guilty, and they'd brush you off. They'd go, oh, you know, they didn't die for you. They'd give you platitudes. I know they didn't die for me. You know, they were going to die anyway. I mean, all these really horrible. And I would think about if I was a woman who lost a breast, and I said, you know, to cancer, I really I'm mourning my breast. Everybody would go, oh, that's so I'm so sorry. Oh, that must be tough. That's what they would do. But when you tell them because they think, well, you got your you got your plumbing job, go away. That's what they think. That's what they thought. And um, I was I was, you know, I had really, really bad survivor's guilt for the first several years, maybe up to six years of bad. And um, I mean, it would cripple me sometimes. And, and so I, I went to our president, Frank, Frank Bodino from Transplant Speakers, and I said, Frank, I want to do a program because we were doing another program called, um, oh, my God, I can't remember the name of it. It was for the survivors of somebody who had been a donor and, uh, and Sorrowful Joy. And I wanted to come up with a name like Sorrowful Joy. It was how people like that can deal with people who are insensitive to the fact that, you know, they don't know how to talk to somebody whose daughter had been murdered or who had been um, in a car accident or whatever. Um, and, you know, they, they couldn't acknowledge the child anymore. Right. So they had, we had a workshop for that, but we didn't have anything for the guilt. So I wanted to do something for the guilt. And I, I talked it over with my wife. I said, we got to come up with something like Sorrow for Joy. And my wife goes, what about Grateful Guilt? So Rose came up with that. And, and we did the program, and the first time we did the program, I think it was in South Carolina, I had a, a man who was undercover narc cop. He was built like a fireplug. He had a heart transplant, but man, you wouldn't want to mess with this guy. He was like, he was not tall, but he was a, like a brick house. Right. And um, as soon as we started talking about, you know, the fact that people weren't acknowledging our survivor's guilt, he was on all fours, sobbing, because nobody had ever listened to him before. Sobbing, like a little baby, because it was so pent up in him. And when the OPO people saw that, their eyes went wide. They had no idea. And, uh, and so we brought that out through the community, uh, you know, the transplant community. And, and suddenly, uh, guilt was being, um, was being um, allayed and, and being dealt with. And um, and then after that, some people started to try to claim that they were the ones who did it. I'm here to tell you, Transplant Speakers International, the people who where is the organization that brought um, survivors' guilt to the front in in transplantation. Uh, and huge hats off to you guys as well for that because, I mean, those are two of the coolest things in one way, and some of the saddest things in another that I I've I've heard because. When somebody disacknowledges your feelings, 
of something so severe. And of course, you know, as you were describing it in regards to a woman in breast cancer, and we're not downplaying that at all by any means. And I and I know just in case, because somebody's going to say something, we're not downplaying that in any means. We're just saying, look, this is acknowledged, but this isn't. It's not right. And it's not fair. And right. I mean, we're acknowledging it. It's a horrible thing. But everybody who says to the woman, oh, it's a horrible thing. Right. But they won't. But they wouldn't do that with transplants. They go, oh, you got your heart. What are you talking about? Oh, you're so ungrateful. You wouldn't believe the guilt trips they would lay on us. You know, yeah, yeah, you know, and, and you know, grateful, boom, that's that's right in the story, as, as, as your wife pointed out, you know, and, and, and created, you know. But the idea of sitting there saying that somebody wouldn't sit down and say to you, hey, man, how are you feeling internally? Yes, it's a gift. Yes, you're blessed. You can look at it any which way you want. But how are you feeling about it? I can't believe that they didn't have a video and a doctor sit down with you, you know, psychologist or somebody sit there and say afterwards, man, how are you feeling, you know, psychologically with this? How, you know, what's going through your mind or whatever. That would have been one of the things I would have thought would have been on the list, but I guess that's just the way I look at stuff. Well, yeah, it, it, you would think, but now that, now that we brought it to the fore and now the, all the OPOs understand it, it's taken care of now. Now, how old were you the first, when, when, when you went around us the first time? Oh, it was 47. 47. So, so we're not talking about, you know, you being, this isn't the 60s and 70s and 80s or even 90s. So, you know, you're, you're looking at, or maybe, maybe the 90s, I didn't do the math. But I mean, but we're not talking about 50 years ago. We're talking about in recent time, and it still wasn't addressed. Right. And, yeah, and two years after my transplant, uh, two or three years after my transplant, uh, TSI, we're the ones who addressed it. That's but, um, but it's it's different now, and I, I I don't I don't I think the LPOs picked up the ball because I don't see the problem as much as it used to be. But among ourselves, we used to we used to just complain to each other, and and like um, the president started to feel guilty because he had a family member who was like almost yelling at him, "You got your heart. Why aren't you grateful?" And and he was like, "Am I being ungrateful?" But and, he, and, he, and of course he wasn't. He's extremely grateful. But that's the that's the way it is. It, it, when you have that kind of a thing in your head about that you have um, survivor's guilt, if somebody turns on you like that, then you question yourself. Right. Right. You, you know, man, I, I'll tell you what. You bring things forefront that uh, you know, and I and I deal with a lot of this stuff away from Lifebox Media Channel that uh, isn't normally put on a plate, even often today. So I give you a lot of credit, Stephen, for, I mean, bringing this part and, and the book. I think the people need to sit down and check out the book and even just for the curiosity of learning different things of how somebody walks through something in life. And it's just not, your advice, by the way, isn't just, in my opinion, just for transplant people. I think that the idea of how you listed, how you deal with people in a hospital, how you, you know, you don't, you know, yell it and thump your chest and say, do you know who the hell I am? Because frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn if there's 25 people online that are dying. They're not going to care about who you are if they have to take care of each one of these people and everything else. They're not going to jump on you. And I, I think that's great advice to sit there and say it doesn't make a difference if you're the president of the Queen of England. You know, I mean, hey, look, they're going to come to you and they're not going to want to treat you or give you the very best if you're treating them badly. You know, right. And I and I right. and I love the practical advice about you know what to wear you know if you're in a hospital and you're there for a little bit of time I think that's fantastic advice, um, you know this. I, I'm sorry. I even talk about how I how I 
the, how I finally got rid of bullies. I was bullied my whole life as a kid. You know, I was, I was bullied up until finally one day I figured out how to, how to not be bullied anymore. And I even have that. I think that's really important. You know, obviously let me ask you a question. Were you very frail per se? Did you, were you allowed to participate or partake in any sports or any physical activities as a boy? Yeah, I mean, they kept thinking, my parents were told that I was never going to get past five, that I wasn't going to get past six, I wasn't right. going to get past, I wasn't going to get out of my teenage years, I was told I wasn't going to get out of 20, then I was told, I've been told five times in my life I have a year to live. Um, so, you know, yeah, was I frail as a, as a kid, you know, when I was really sick as a kid, I was really frail. But it turned out that I was pretty strong, which I didn't know. Um but as I started to realize how strong I was, that 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 helped me. But I, I was um, a wiry little thing, and I, I I was stronger than you would have thought. Um, and so that came into. But I was just absolutely horrible at sports. And, and first of all, nobody ever taught me anything because you know what are you going to teach a little hard kid? You know. Right. So I was never taught how to throw a ball. I still throw a ball like a girl. I don't know how to throw a ball. Um, you know. But I can I can run a canoe. I can I can I'm really good on a canoe. I mean, you know, I can sail. I can I can fly gliders. You know, um, not the most well. Sailing is fairly active sport, but um, yeah, I mean, yeah, sailing's work, yeah, man. Yeah, sailing sailing is work, and you know, I used to go sailing a lot because I lived I lived beyond near Huntington Harbor and near Oyster Bay and Glen Cove in, in Long Island up until a few months ago, but. Uh, uh, I miss sailing, but, uh, you know, but as far as, you know, baseball, football, those kind of things, I, I had to get doctor's notes to get out of gym because I just was attacked in, in, in gym classes, you know, so. Right. Um, yeah, but, but you, were, uh, you were, your intestine, you know, your, your strength inside was, was, was a really big deal because of the fact that, man, you just don't kick out of this stuff and, and mosey on. And it's funny, you said, you know, you said sailing. I, I saw the Top Gun premiere last night, and they take Tom Cruise sailing, and he said, this is hard work, and he said, she said, you're a Top Gun pilot. He said, no, this is hard work. I can fly, and uh, and they were yeah. sailing, you know, but, and sailing is hard work, and I've done it, so I mean, man, to say that you can go sailing or, or canoeing or whatever, I mean, that's really cool, and I think it gives, thing, I, want, I was hoping we would segue to you saying something that you were doing uh, that you can do or, you you know, you did do. And, and that's a big deal because it shows that you can find things to do. And, and hey, man, like I said, sailing's hard work. And, and you know, you to do it, enjoy it, and you miss it. And, you know, there's some great lakes down here, brother, by the way. I live I live right near one, you know. So uh, you got to check out the boats if you have time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, yeah, right now we're still in the process of moving in. You know, it's like right, uh, right, right. It's all, all-consuming, my goodness. We're, right now um, I'm very happy to that uh, my kitchen is being renovated as we speak. And I am so glad that they're not making any noise. <laughs> <laughs> me too. Me too. But I mean, and, and, hey, no matter, no matter what, no matter how enjoyable, moving can suck. So, I mean, even uh, when, when, when you get, <laughs> you know, so much love and respect to you and your wife for, uh, for going through this and you taking the time, my friend to do so. I really appreciate it. But, you know, I want, I want to tell you this sincerely to, to not, not be uh, dissuade, not be pushed aside, not take things, you know, and, and not take no for an answer, 
you know, and, and the, you know, you know, I'm not taking no for an answer and you to kick out and keep coming and keep coming, man, you know, because people's telling you, you can't and, and, you know, giving you a year to live and all this, that, and the other thing, you know, how's that working out for you? Well, I think pretty damn good, you know, but you that's kind of a very much of an inspiration to people to listen to on, on the right way of things that you don't have to settle and just kind of like go into the sunset. Right. And, and, and everybody has to understand that everything is, is, is two things, two things in life. There's decisions and there's gratitude. When you're sick, when you're whatever, you make a decision, I'm going to do this. If they tell you you're sick, I'm going to get better. That's your decision. And now everything is based on that decision. But most of all, before that is gratitude. And mastering gratitude is the key to life. It's absolutely the key to life. And, and when I say mastering gratitude, because you have to be grateful in everything, in the things that are bad as well as the things that are good. When you can master gratitude, it changes your health. As, as, I mean, of course it changes your perspective, but it changes your health. And if you want to survive something, be, make a decision and be grateful. I love that. Let me ask you a question. So your health today, not going to wood Lord willing, how's your health today, sir? Really good. I, I'm. I'm in the. I have better health today than I. I was. Um, in a long time. In a long time. I exercise an hour a day. I eat right. I keep eating my. I, I'm at. I'm below my goal weight. I mean, I'm. I'm really doing well. My doctors are amazed. That's fantastic. And and how did you? Uh, and I want to be a bird. How did you uh, go around the COVID thing? Did you? Were you able to get? Vaccines or no vaccines without a heart transplant? I don't know the you know the answers on that stuff. Well, I take a drug called Tacolomus, which is an which is an anti rejection drug, which is a, a you know which is a, a immunosuppressant. Yes, sir. Um, if you take Tacolomus and you take the the, the jab, as they call it, um, there's a fifty percent chance that it will do nothing because the Tacolomus just neutralizes it. And then I now remember my wife is a, is a nurse. She's been a, she's a chemo nurse, and she's been a nurse. She was a nurse for thirty six years. She um she and I both. She didn't like certain aspects of the of the of the jab because she didn't like that it wasn't a vetted drug. She didn't like it hadn't gone through the FDA process. Sure. She saw a nurse get the jab and stand up and fall on her face. Um. And she just didn't, she was very uncomfortable with it. We went through the whole COVID-19 thing, her working with COVID patients, you know, um, coming home, we managed to not get sick. We got, we both got Omicron a little while ago, but, oh, I didn't finish. But so, so the, if you have a transplant and you're taking tacolomus, taking, taking the shot, 50% chance, it's not going to do a thing. And the other thing about that is, we know that it has heart side effects. Right. So my my wife and I both go for a fifty percent chance of it not working, but whatever the chance is that it could hurt me, we just didn't think it added up. So we decided that I wouldn't take it, and she didn't want it for her for her own reasons. I mean, it's not like my wife's an uninformed person. I mean, you know, right. Uh, and uh, we just both didn't take it. Um, then we both got. Um, uh, what the, the, the what is it called again? Omicron. Omicron, right? Yeah, which, um, whichever. I know what you meant. 
Yeah, Omicron. It is Omicron, which was a video game, which is astounding to me. But, um, <laughs> You're showing my end your age, brother. <laughs> I know. But she's, she's like, um, but we both got it. It was like having, I don't know, like a sinus infection. Right. It, you know, we were tired for weeks. About three weeks, we were really tired. But we weren't really sick. It, it never really knocked us down. Um, and... Um, and we're fine, and now we have immunity, so we're thrilled. Right, yeah, I've, I've been on all sides of it. I've lost people from it that were healthy, da 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 and everything else. I just, you know, and I, I'm, I'm for it, and I'm a, uh, you know, but I'm, I'm for the, the shots per se, but I just did not know, with you having it, obviously, you know, you know your protection and what you had to do because you just not, I hadn't talked to anybody who had been in your position before, and I'm, I appreciate you really sharing I thank you for that because obviously there's uh and all you know everything that your wife said is valid. I mean, hey, I I, I joke and say it is true. Hey, I don't know. Maybe in two years I'll have twelve toes. You know, I don't know. You know, I mean, it might happen. You know, without without things. But you know, I appreciate the fact that you know obviously because of the shot. I mean, it's a joke. But I mean, but seriously. But I mean, I appreciate you sharing that because the fact that you know I wanted to know, and for any of our listeners out there in our sixty eight countries. I want to know, you know, people looking at, hey, look, you're in this position. Obviously, be informed. Obviously, talk to your doctors. But you're you're the first person we've had on that's been in your position as a double heart transplant, you know, and and that kind of thing. And you know, a survivor two times over this. So I appreciate you sharing your opinion. It's very valuable to me. Well, I'm going to tell you in all honesty, in the, in the transplant world, it, I would say it's split fifty fifty. I know as many transplants who won't who won't get the job the jab as I do who did get the jab. And and, and the thing that kills me about the ones who, who did, I, I, I know are kidney transplants who've gotten, who've gotten the shot four times and they still don't have antibodies and they're still getting shots. And I don't understand, that doesn't make any sense to me because you're taking something that we don't really know everything about and you're putting it into your body four times. How many times are you gonna do that until it works? Um, and that's really just because they're so scared and at this point, the virus, it was 19, when it was 19, it was a really dangerous thing. And Rose and I took all the precautions. You wouldn't believe the precautions we took to not get sick. I mean, we were active about it. Right. But but now, everything is so mild. It's like, I don't understand why everybody is still so frightened. And why they're, you know people are, are wanting to take um, shots of something that hasn't been approved when it's not working. And everybody I know who, who has gotten the virus had the jab. So that also made my wife and I go, what the, what the heck, you know? Yeah, I, 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 like, like I said, I've been on all sides of it, and I've lost numerous relatives because of it with, non, with no uh, complicating issues, no pre-existing issues, anything else in the process, uh, unfortunately, uh, including my father. But um, well, I'm sorry to hear that. I really am. No, nah, he was one of the first, and I think they just didn't realize it back, you know, because it was like right as it was opening, you know, and they just didn't realize it. But, it, it, you know, it does, I think the thing is, I think a lot of it's common sense and everything else. And uh, and like you said, you know, when, when everything was the extreme, you know, you, you take the precautions, and I still take some precautions, not as many as I did, but, you know, and everything else. As a matter of fact, I've been sick a couple times, so I haven't got my booster which I'll get, but I mean, you know, every time I've gone to get it, I've had something <laughs> that it was. But anyway, and I appreciate you sharing your, your, your opinion and, and the idea of also in your position. Now, as far as the fact that the book's concerned, 
obviously, and by the way, congratulations that it's out on audio. Yes, thank you. I, that took too long. <laughs> that that had that had to be a process, brother. But I'm so glad because I think, <clears throat> excuse me, people will say, "Hey, man, look, I can be driving to work and I can listen to this." Right, but they they have to know where they can get it because they can't get it on Audible for some reason. Audible has just been dragging their feet. Harlan, Harlan and I have talked about it. He knows that that's true. Um, but, um, uh, but Google Play has it, uh, Kobo has it, Scribe has it, Chirp, Apple, Nook, and HiBooks have my book. So everywhere else but Audible. I just want to make sure everybody doesn't just look at Audible and give up. Uh, I'll make sure I'll make sure to post those in there as well, Stephen, uh, with this interview. And if anybody has any questions, email uh, me and ask me, and I'll make sure to send it out to you again so you can find out where to get it if you have any questions. But I'll make sure to list it with the interview uh, as well. Um, Thank you. Um, no, my, my friend, I, I, want, I would love to have you back on again. I would love to, one, I'd love to talk about your TV career more and, and, and your production career part of it is, and I'd also love to talk more about this. So please, I hope this summer you'll come back on. Sure, just talk to you know you know who to talk to. Uh, oh, I, oh, I love Harlan. Um, <laughs> I, know, I, 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 I love Harlan. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've known Harlan for years, and I, he, he, he's fantastic. Um, now, question, my friend, where can everybody get the book? The book itself is a, a, a most people get it at Amazon, but I've, I've, people have gotten it at, um, at at some of the major bookstores. You know, uh, um, it, it's it's in bookstores. Uh, I don't think it's in every bookstore right now, but you can absolutely get it on Amazon. Okay. And are you going to be doing any publicity for the book? Um, you know, are you going to make any appearances for the book at all? I would like to. Um, I, I'm actually working on seeing it, that, uh, about that, but um, I would like to. And I, I, I'm also trying to speak at hospitals. Uh, I, I'd like uh, to speak to doctors about uh patient care and uh, patient experience and, you know, how to, how to deal with patients better than they do because they could really improve. Um, um, I, I think bedside manner, you know, it's like that old Patch Adams thing. I think bedside manner can be worth a, a billion dollars, even if there's very little hope. You know, you can make somebody feel like a, a billion dollars and feel like they're mattered and they cared and they're loved and you matter with just a little extra attention or a, a smile or, you know, something and to listen to your patient. Yes. I, I mean, you know, um, doctors and patients have a, have a very wrong idea about medicine. Um, and I, I, I don't know, am I going over time here? Uh, you say okay? what you want, brother. No, you're, you're good. You're good, my friend. We, we have a few minutes. Okay. So, I always ask this question when, I, when I'm with doctors. Uh, uh, when I speak to groups of doctors, I say, a patient comes to you and they say, doctor, I'm sick. And you say, yeah, you are. And the patient says, doctor, can you, can you, can you heal me? Can you, can you heal me, doctor? And the, patient, the doctor says, yes, I can. Who's wrong in that conversation? Well, well I mean, the, the doctor is. They both are. Yeah, well, I'm saying, well, he's he's going to him for it, but yes, both of them are. But yeah, the doctor's in the healing part, but yes, because it's both, it's a joint effort. Well, it's because doctors do not heal, patients heal. Right. Doctors promote healing. 
and a lot of times people think it's this is part of the this is part of the the whole thing about understanding what you need to understand if you want to get well the doctor is not going to heal you you're going to heal you the doctor is going to promote the healing whether you heal or not is up to you that's a big difference and the doctors doctors sometimes think no they're the ones who do the healing no you're not you promote the healing you may do the operation, you may prescribe the medicine, but the patient's attitude, the patient's um, will, the patient's decisions, the patient's strategies are going to decide whether or not they heal or not. Absolutely. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. Now, where can people reach out and find you on social media? Well, I'm on, I'm on Facebook on Stephen Tybee Author. That's where most people reach me. Um, I also have GratefulGuilt.com. Um, and I'm on LinkedIn as, as uh, Stephen Taibbi. And where can people reach out to you if they want to book you for a speaking engagement? Any one of those things. Um, be easy to reach me on uh, on Facebook at Stephen Taibbi Author, or uh, or at <coughs> or LinkedIn at Stephen Taibbi. It would be the easiest ways. It has been such a pleasure having you on. I thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Go check out. Grateful guilt, living in the shadow of my heart. This is something that I, I'm, man, I'm telling you, I'm so excited to have you on today. I kind of almost speechless for a second because of the fact that it really has been a real pleasure talking to you. Well, thank you so much. And, and I really appreciate the opportunity that you've given me both for the book, but mostly for the promotion of um, people being able to heal themselves and for transplantation. I thank you so much. The Lifebox Media Channel, you guys check it out, ladies and gentlemen. Grateful guilt. Living in the Shadows of My Heart. You can pick it up at any of your major bookstores. Order it. Check it out on Amazon. And also we'll have all the audio links for Google Play and everything else all listed above. Lifebox Media Channel, we are out.